Okay, well, let's go ahead and get started. And Joe is here helping out uh, with the taping and everything, and he's going to be coming some on Sunday mornings. It's Joe Box, for those of you all who don't know him. And Stephen is there getting ready to go to Lake Point as soon as we get through here. So let's ask the Lord's uh, guidance and thank him for his blessings. Father, I do thank you for your blessings. I thank you for the ways in which you bestow your favor upon us in daily ways. I ask that you would open our hearts to blessing. Open our hearts to be celebratory people. Of all people on earth, we should celebrate. And I just ask that you open our hearts to celebration, Father, to the celebration of you, of you among us, of you in us, of what you have given to us and done for us. Help us to celebrate this life you have made possible for us. And I pray that this hour be seized by the grip of your will and that you massage it into the very depths of our being so that we can be a part of your revolution. Strategic elements of your revolution help us to be seized, Father, by you and by the vision of who you are, who you were among us 2,000 years ago, and of who we are today. I pray this in the name of Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen. <clears throat> We've been looking at the revolutionary um, focus or vision of Christ. And his vision was set by his purpose. What he saw and how he saw was set by why he was, why he had come, by who he was. So I just want to review what you already know about his purpose. Um, Luke 4, uh, 18. His anointing um, by the Holy Spirit was to preach the gospel to the poor. He'd been sent. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to preach deliverance to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty them that are bruised, to preach the acceptable year of the Lord. So his sentness was about looking for the brokenhearted, uh, seeking out those who are in captivity, and bringing liberation and freedom to those captive places in us all, those bruised places in us all 
um, offering a liberation and a freedom, a giving of sight to the blind, and I think that's not just physically, but bringing sight to those who are spiritually and emotionally blind. and preaching um, the year of Jubilee. I hadn't thought about that when I prepared for this, but to preach the acceptable year of the Lord, that, what that means is the year of Jubilee, which goes to the celebration people that we should be. The year of Jubilee, uh, I'm doing an aside here, is um, in Leviticus uh, 25, Turn over there, because he, this is his first public statement. This is where he comes to acknowledge what his anointing 40-some uh, days earlier had meant. 40 to 50 days earlier had meant. When he was baptized and the Holy Spirit came upon him in the form of a dove, that was his anointing. And it was in that anointing that the Father said, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. That anointing set him apart. That's what an anointing did. It set high priests apart in the Old Testament. It set the Levitical priesthood apart from the rest of the, the, the uh, Hebrew people. Uh, kings were anointed. It set the kings apart from the rest of, of the folks. And uh, the prophets were anointed set apart. And it was not just set apart for them just to sit there. It was set apart with purpose. Destiny. The anointing had to do with the destiny of those who were anointed. The high priests, the priests, the kings, and the prophets. And so here in the anointing of Christ, when he, um, when he reads of his anointing out of the book of Isaiah, it was not only the Father proclaiming his set-apartness, but it was establishing his purpose out of the book of Isaiah. The purpose was to, to seek and to save the lost, to heal the brokenhearted, to set at liberty the bruised, to deliver those who are in captivity, to bring sight to the blind, and good news to the poor, and to preach the acceptable year of the Lord. In... Um, Leviticus 25, that acceptable year of the Lord is laid out. In 23, you have the seven feasts of Israel. In chapter 23, you have the seven feasts of Israel. And uh, he skips a chapter and lands in, in uh, chapter 25, and he starts talking about the Sabbath year of rest, which is the seventh year. Uh, in which the land lay fallow, which means that the sixth year had to produce enough crops for the sixth year, the seventh year, and the eighth year. But they lived this Sabbath year of rest, which is a lesson for us. We think that we don't have time to have Sabbath rest. We don't have time to let go of things and really rest. And if the Lord is leading us to that in some fashion, then the faith step there is if he could take care of the children of Israel in the Sabbath year of rest, he can take care of you and me as we 
get off the uh, treadmill here and the rat race. But then you go on down here in um, chapter 25. And um, the King James is a little confusing starting in verse 8. But basically it says on the seven uh, sevens of years, 49 years. And the 50th year is a uh, year of jubilee. Uh, in um, verse 9, then shall you cause the trumpet of the jubilee to sound on the 10th day of the 7th month. In the day of atonement shall you make the trumpet sound throughout all your land. And you shall hallow the 50th year and proclaim liberty throughout all the land unto the inhabitants thereof. It shall be a jubilee unto you. And you shall return every man unto his possession, and you shall return every man unto his family. A jubilee shall be, uh, shall that 50th year be unto you. Uh, for verse 12, for it is the jubilee, it shall be holy unto you. And you go on down, and, and it goes into some of the details, but um, land returns to its original owner. All debts are canceled on this Day of Atonement when the trumpet blows. Heralding, foreshadowing the ultimate worldwide year of Jubilee, humankind year of Jubilee, when all of our sins are truly and ultimately and permanently atoned for, and we are free. And the land of earth and that final trump in Revelation 11, 15, it returns to its original owner. The kingdoms of this world become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his king. It's a year of jubilee. All debts are canceled permanently and forever. So Christ's purpose and mission was not just the ones that I read about so often there in Luke 4, uh, 18, uh, of preaching the good news to the poor and healing the blind. Um, it is also preaching the year of Jubilee. And um, in Luke 4, uh, 18, he closed the book, actually, verse 20, and he gave it again to the minister and sat down, and the eyes of all of them were uh, that were in the synagogue were fastened on him, and he began to say unto them, This day is the scripture fulfilled in your ears. I'm wondering if that was the year of Jubilee. I don't know. Um, but he was preaching the year of Jubilee. That was his focus because that was his purpose. His purpose dictated what he saw and who he saw and how he saw. Uh, let's look again at why he had come. Uh, Luke 9, 13. Well, that's not correct. 
We'll try Luke 9.56. I don't know why that's... Because um, I looked at it this morning, so I just must have uh, written down. Uh, he said, I have come to seek and to save the lost. Is what I was looking for. Um, going over to Luke 9.56. Uh, uh, the Son of Man is not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. Um, Matthew fifteen twenty four. He's come not to destroy men's lives, but to save them. And maybe Matthew fifteen twenty four is what I was looking for. I don't know why I put nine down. Uh, fifteen twenty four. I am not sent, but unto the lost sheep of the house of Israel. This is when the Syrophoenician woman was coming and petitioning his help <clears throat> for her child. His focus was ultimately, he had the pulls of all of the known world upon him. He had the pulls of the, of the Gentiles and the Greeks upon him because they were equally fascinated and, and, and enchanted by this miracle-working man. And he had to keep his focus upon the Jewish people, not because he was, you know, uh, discriminating against anyone else, but because they had to hear the message, and the message had to speak loudly and clearly to the Jewish people to give them their last full chance of accepting him as Messiah before the end of the age of the Jews and the beginning of the age of the Gentiles. Before the weeping over Jerusalem, just days before he went to uh, Golgotha, uh, he needed to know before that moment that he had done everything he could to present the good news to the Jewish people, to the chosen ones of Israel, because there would come a time in which God would be removing himself from them, but it had to be by their decisions. And so he had to resist the temptation for distractions, even though we would have thought, not knowing his purpose, that this was not a distraction. Now, he did meet the needs of some people who were Gentiles, but very few because his purpose was to, to seek the lost sheep of Israel and to save them and to give the, the, the message uh, of redemption uh, to them. In Matthew uh, 20, turn just a few pages on over to Matthew 20. He speaks here, and 28 is the, the focal point uh, there in Matthew 20, but I want to start with 26. In verse 25, he's talking about the, the princes and the leaders and those in authority um, of the Gentiles exercise dominion over them. But he says in verse 26, It shall not be so among you, but whosoever will be great among you, let him also be your minister. And whosoever will be chief among you, let him be your servant. For even as the Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister and to give his life a ransom for many, Christ the King came as a servant. Came not to be ministered unto, but to minister and to give his life as a ransom. Now turn on over to John 13. John 13, as you know, this is the last evening of his life with the disciples. They have had the Passover meal. 
And um, <coughs> then he gets up from supper in uh, chapter 13. Uh, it starts in verse 1, although I'm not going to land there. And he wraps a towel around him, and he, began, and he pours water in the basin, and he begins to wash the disciples' feet. And you all know the story where Peter resisted that. And Jesus said, if, if you don't let me wash your feet, you'll, I'll have nothing to do with you, and you'll have nothing in me. And um, then Peter, you know, said, well, then wash all of me, basically, That's <laughs> uh, what he was saying. And um, Jesus said in verse 10 as a lead-in, he that is washed does not need anything to be washed but his feet. He's clean everywhere else. And you are clean, but not all. Now, what, does that, what that harkens back to is the cleansing ceremony of the priesthood, of the Levitical Aaronic priesthood when the priests were, their whole bodies were washed with water and they, they put on linen garments. And that washing, and then at that time they were anointed with a unique oil that was only to be used in the anointing of the priesthood from generation on. God gave them a unique recipe for anointing oil. Um, so they were washed one time in this washing ritual of the priesthood uh, the, when they entered into it only. And then thereafter, they would wash their hands and feet inside the outer, in the outer courtyard of the tabernacle or the temple of the morning and of the evening symbolic of washing away the dust of the world that had collected just by their daily uh, uh, existence in the world. That harkens over to 1 John uh, 1, 9, where it says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just, not only to forgive us of our sins, but to cleanse us. Cleanse us, wash us clean. We are washed clean with his word, John 3, uh, 15, 3, and we are washed clean by his blood and by the living water of the Holy Spirit. So when Peter says, wash all of me, Jesus is drawing from that old covenant understanding. And he said, you've been washed. And he tells him just that evening, you are washed in my word. You are made clean. Oh, just on over, probably less than an hour later. Um, in verse 3 of chapter 15 of John, he says, Now you are clean through the word which I have spoken unto you. So he tells Peter in verse 10, He that is washed doesn't need anything else to be washed. You are clean, but you need your feet washed. And it's not just the symbolism of that, but it is a statement as to who I am and who you are. This is what's important here this night. In verse 12, the last half of verse 12, after he has washed their feet, he sits down again and he says, do you know what I have done to you here? You call me Master and Lord, and you say, well, for so I am. Elsewhere, he says, the servant is not greater than the Master. And he said, I am Master, and he's getting ready to essentially tell them, 
of, of, the, of the community here that he is initiating. You've called me Master and Lord, and you say, well, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and Master, have washed your feet, you ought also to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should do as I have done to you. Verily, verily, I say unto you, the servant is not greater than his Lord, neither he that is sent greater than he that sent him. What he's speaking to is not just who he is, that he came not to be served, not to be ministered unto, but to minister. I find that just astonishing. Uh, this being who romped among the stars and created them. This being who lived in perfection and beauty and, and glory. A Shekinah glory that if we even approach it, we will be destroyed. A holiness that does not allow that which is unholy to come into the presence. He was that. And he had all the angelic host praising and worshiping him. And this king of the universe and of eternity disrobed his royal garments and donned human cloth, tattered human cloth. and walk the dusty plains of the Middle East telling people they could be free. And wrapping a servant's towel around him and serving them. I don't comprehend that. I, I can't wrap my mind around that. That he came to serve us. But here's the thing, as the Father has sent me, even so send I you. We are being asked by this servant king to be servants. And if we catch that that message of the servant cloth, and we put the servant's cloth on and wear it, it changes how we see and who we see. It changes our hearts. Before we are sent out in that garb, before we can answer the call of the servant, we first have to come. Matthew eleven twenty eight. Come unto me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek in spirit. And my yoke is easy and my burden is light. We have to come to him not just for salvation, 
but for his reign in our life, for lordship. And if we come to him, laying it all out there before him, then that coming is an answer to a call. His call sets us apart if we answer it, just like he was set apart. Let's look at some of these scriptures that speak to that. He, he insisted, he, he absolutely remained focused because you know that these demands by other people who were so hungry for him, so much more hungry for him than the Jewish community, particularly the elite Jewish community, you know how it, it, that could easily have been a temptation for him just to go off and say, and, and, and say, well, you know, forget you, I'm going to go over here. He knew that forgetting, in quotes, was coming. But his purpose was to finish the task, to complete all that his father had given him to do. And then there would be the passing of the torch. It could not be passed until he had finished and dotted every I and crossed every T, every dot and tittle of the law had to be fulfilled and he had to finish what his father had given him to do. He says that in John. But to do that, he had to resist the distractions. What he saw was governed by why he was here, by his purpose. The what came out of the why. Who he saw came out of the why. Who he went to. He came to seek and to save the lost. So he went to the woman bent over and, and, and to, the, and to the, the wounded and to the crippled. You know, you hear, you hear people sometimes, I don't know if any of you have heard this phrase before, but people who, almost every one of them have tended to have quite a bit. And I've heard this more than once in my life, and I just say about a person, well, she is so wounded. She's so wounded. You know, you just can't, you can't. The idea, the implication was that their woundedness made it hard for them and maybe pushed them away from having a relationship with them because they're so wounded. I hear that from Christians. The call of Christ was to the wounded. He said, I haven't come for those that are, are whole. I've come for those who are sick. It is the sick that need the physician. Is that statement uh, a statement of there are some out there who, are, who have it all together? Some out there who are not wounded, who are not sick? No. But there are plenty of people out there who do not know that they are wounded and who do not know that they are sick. And the people that I've heard make those statements are usually very deeply wounded themselves and they don't know it. We are called to the wounded. As surely as Christ was called to the wounded, so are we. 
John 20, as the Father has sent me, even so send I you. He was sent to the lost. We are sent to the lost. He was sent to the wounded. We are sent to the wounded. He was sent to the brokenhearted. We are sent to the brokenhearted. He was sent to those in bondage and in captivity, emotionally, spiritually, and physically. And we are sent to those. But we can't go and bring the good news of, of the healing balm of Gilead if we haven't come to him first and received that healing ourselves. That's why the coming is, is essential before he sends us out. He calls us to follow him. If we follow him, we come to him. And as we come to him and follow him, we learn of him. We take his yoke upon us and we receive his healing. And as we receive his healing, there comes a time. He didn't send the disciples out right after he called them to follow. He called them to follow so that they could receive from him what they needed. So we hear the call and we come. And we sit at his feet, we follow him, we be with him until his healing comes to us. We're not whole. We have not come to him because we were whole. We, were, we have come to him because we had need of him. We've come to him because we walk with a limp at best. And some of us are in wheelchairs, our gurneys. <laughs> 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 and we're asking our friends to take us to him, you know, because <laughs> we can't get there ourselves. We have come to him because of our deprivations, emotionally, spiritually, psychologically, personality. We've come to him because we are wounded and need him. We are not whole. So when we come to him, and we take his yoke upon us and learn uh, of him. When we come to him and sit at his feet, and he pours his truth into us, and he begins to pour his healing into us, and his whole making into us, because his word is making us whole. His word is coming in and prying loose the barnacles of pain and suffering from our soul. The gouges that have been in us that we didn't even know we had because at times we felt needless. <laughs> when we've come to him and sat at his feet, come to him and followed him as best we can follow him. And remember the disciples were not very good at following him. I mean, they tagged along, but they had their own idea of what that would look like. They had their own idea of what this kingdom life was going to be about. And Jesus was constantly having to correct them, constantly having to correct them, saying, no, you don't know what spirit you are of, Luke 9, 56. I have come not to destroy, but to save. I've come not to judge, but to give life. And so the disciples didn't get that until the last few moments before they went out into Gethsemane. They finally got it. And you see Jesus kind of in... John 16, shaking his head. Do you now believe? They've finally gotten it, and he's getting ready to leave them. No time for patting the, the nest here and feathering the nest of belief. They got it, and he was gone. And then they didn't know whether they got it or not. 
then they are desolate. So they're still wounded. And it was not until the Holy Spirit came in to them in full force at Pentecost that everything was ready for them to be sent out. Go ye into all the world and preach and teach and baptize and make disciples. That night in the room after Christ had um, seen Mary Magdalene that morning in John 20, he comes and he breathes on them. And he says, receive you the Holy Spirit. That was the first touch of the Holy Spirit because they didn't receive the power then of the Holy Spirit. It was not until many days later at Pentecost where the power of the Holy Spirit came into them. So we come to him and we learn of him, we grow, we let him move into our lives and clean out our territory, clean out those pockets and closets of our soul, and then he begins to send us out. And just as he did the disciples in in, uh, Luke 10, turn over there for a moment. He sent out the 12, and then in in chapter 9, he sent out the 12, and then in chapter 10, he appointed 70 others and sent them out, two by two, verse 1, into every city and place where he would be coming. And he gave them instructions, told them what to do. Now, they didn't have a full picture here, and they certainly weren't fully equipped with power to go out and save the world. They were just doing following his instructions and doing what he told them to do. And he gives them instructions on what to do if people will receive them and if they don't receive them. And in verse 9, he says, You heal the sick and say unto them, The kingdom of heaven is coming to you. And he gave them power to cast out demons, to raise the dead. And in verse 17, the 70 returned again with joy, saying, Lord, Even the devils are subject to us by your name. They were so pumped. And Jesus said, I beheld Satan as lightning fall from heaven. Behold, I give you the power to tread on serpents. Verse 20, notwithstanding in all of this, don't rejoice that the spirits are subject unto you, but rather rejoice because your names are written in heaven. They didn't get all of it. He's still training them, but they went out anyway. We don't have to wait until we're in per- perfect healing and wholeness. That won't happen. If we wait till then, then none of the world will be saved by us because we'll all have to wait till heaven before we get it, our acts together. On my tombstone, I think I'm going to have, she finally has her act together. Because <laughs> it won't be together this side of the tombstone. So we don't wait until we have it all together. He sent them out with very little training. But they had hearts that were willing to obey. They didn't have hearts that fully understood at all. They didn't have hearts that were fully renovated. That didn't happen until Pentecost. They still had a work to do. And it was a powerful work because the power came into them from on high. The power came into them from Christ himself. From the anointing that he gave them. 
we all, once we've accepted Christ as our Savior, have received the same anointing as Christ. 1 John 2. Turn over there for just a moment. Verse 20. But you have an anointing from the Holy One, and you know all things. This is... Uh, John speaking to fellow Christians. Verse 27, But the anointing which you have received of him abides in you. And that anointing teaches you all things and is truth. We have an anointing. Uh, turn to Acts 10.38. This speaks of the anointing of the Holy One, from the Holy One. <clears throat> Acts 10, 38. How God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Ghost and with power, who went about doing good and healing all that were oppressed of the devil, for God was with him. And yet, John tells us that we have the same anointing. Christ tells us that as he was sent by his Father, he sends us. He sends us as wounded healers. He sends us as crippled servants. We don't have our act together, and we will not, until the tombstone is over our grave. Only then do we have our act together. But he equips us because he has anointed us. The anointing equips us. The anointing equips the wounded. The anointing equips the crippled. You say, well, I can't do that. Well, you don't have to worry. That's good. When I am weak, he is strong. Great. I glory in my weakness. I can't do it. It gives God his chance to do it through us, to do it in us, and to get the glory for it because we are wounded vessels. We are crippled servants, but he asks the crippled and the wounded who are open and available to him to serve and minister anyway. And we do it in his power, and we do it in his strength. So that God's strength is made complete. His power is made complete in our weakness. It is not made complete in our strength. Now we have natural abilities. And we think, okay, he just needs to top off the tank on this one. You know? And then I'm ready. I've got all the skills. I've got all the abilities. I've got this giftedness, whatever the giftedness is. I've got the talent. He just needs to top off my tank and we are ready to go. <laughs> this is the role of breaking. He has to come in, Peter and Peterette, <laughs> and break our natural strength so that we can know we are weak and his strength and power can move in to our now emptied vessel and fill us up with who he is and bind us with his servant's cloth. 
and send us out. Whole only because he is whole and he is in us. Yes, we do see that transition in Peter. Yes. He held the mirror of his own brokenness up before him. And Peter in, in, on, in John 21 on the Sea of Galilee was in anguish and pain because he knew his brokenness and he knew his weakness at this point. He could not get around it, that his natural strength was nothing in the face of Satan's attack and Satan's sifting. We all have to know that in order for us to serve. We all have to know that in order for us to be strangely fit instruments. We all have to know that we are fragmented in order for him to pour his power into us and make his power complete in our weakness. And so he calls you and me to be servants. What is your purpose here? You know, I think as humans we often come, even as Christians, and say, why am I here? Sometimes in our moments of discouragement, we think, I don't have any reason for being here. Just take me on home. Beam me up, Scotty. Get me out of here. I'm not serving any useful purpose. But he has called you, 1 Timothy, with a holy calling. As the Father has called, he has also sent. As he has called, he has set aside. As he has called you and me to come follow him, as he's called you and me to come know of him, to take his yoke upon us, he has anointed us if we've answered the call. If we come to him, he has anointed us. And in coming to him, he equips us as we go. We don't have to have a PhD degree before we get sent out. He equips us because he has anointed us. It is his spirit that sends us. It is his spirit that makes us in the midst of our weakness whole people. Not because we are whole, but because he's whole in us. So as he has been sent, he then sends us. As he's been equipped, he's, he equips us. And he's given you and me a purpose. It is to go and live as he lived. It is to go and reach out as he reached out. It is to go and to see those who are lost in the shadows of the tree. Those who are at the edge of the crowd. It is to look for those who are broken and go to them. It is to look for those who are in captivity and go to them. 
those who need deliverance of some sort and to go to them. Those who need life to look for them and be that life for them because the life of the world lives in you. To be that light to those who sit in darkness. Look for those who are in the shadows. That's our purpose. We are not without reason. We are not without destiny. Doesn't matter what's going on. In, your, your work world is external and it's peripheral to your calling. And you and I have been called with a holy calling. And it is to see the people that Jesus saw. It is to detour and go to their houses. It is to call them to you. It is to go and be with them, the ones that no one else may see. Because they are in need of life and breath and hope and healing. And we have life and breath and hope and healing to offer, not because we are whole on our own strength, but because we've tasted the wholeness that is available to broken vessels in Christ. And our calling is to pour that holiness out to others. Let's pray. Father God, thank you that in the difficult blows of life, you transform those broken places in us into humility. And you transform humility into the key to the kingdom. That unless we have the kind of humility a child has that knows their need, we cannot enter into the kingdom and it really can't enter into us. I praise you for the transformational work you do with our pieces, giving us the very base ingredient necessary for us to know you giving us the very base ingredient necessary for us to enter into your kingdom and for the kingdom power to enter into us, humility. I pray that in all of those bruised places in us, Father, that you would grow forth from that place authentic humility that positions us to receive your power and to walk in it and to be changed by it. Help us to be the servants that you have called us to be. Help us to gladly wear servant cloth and follow the master. I pray this in the name of Christ, our Lord and our Savior. Amen.